Good morning, everyone. Wanted to share this photo with you before we look at the sermon. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Miss Doris sandwiched in between Miss Shirley and Mr. Jim. This was taken about three years ago. And for those of you that did not know Miss Doris, and I, I mentioned this in the Bible class, I believe, Wednesday night, but um, I just remember distinctly, she sat over here in the second, third row, and, and after one of the sermons, she said, Mitch, I am tired of sitting in this pew. What more can I be doing in service to God? I said, Miss Doris, you are writing letters to the women that are incarcerated, and, and you're giving them great encouragement. But I'll tell you what, if you want to, now, mind you, Miss Doris is 85 years old in this picture. I said, if you want to, come join us at the jail. I didn't think she'd take me up on the offer, but she did. She and Kathy got trained, uh, gone through orientation, and then... Um, as I recalled in the funeral service, uh, Mr. Shirley, Miss, uh, Miss, Miss Shirley, Mr. Jim, myself, we went and picked them up at Publix, uh, got them transferred over to their car, and I guess on a weekly basis, as long as Miss Doris and Miss Kathy were able, um, she'd come up to the jail, and she actually got to see face-to-face -face the women that she was writing. One of those women, our sister in Christ, Trish Etheridge was just on the news. I don't know if you guys saw that last Friday night. She was on the news um, re with regard to her son's situation. But I'm just connecting some dots for you because Miss Doris affected Miss Trish's life. And you never know what ways you can. She was just present. She didn't teach. She didn't really say much. But her presence was so encouraging. And so you never know what little you can do, what great things you can do in just little ways in your walk with God for his service. So anyway, I wanted to share that with you. So this morning, the songs that, that we have sung was not like a collaboration, but yet the last song that Ray led in the previous hour and the song that Jesse just led for us is a perfect segue what we're talking about. We are reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for our text this morning. We're going to go to the first passages in the, New, in the Old Testament scriptures. But in that passage, he's talking about laying on that foundation, right? Building on that foundation. And if you'll notice, he uses a metaphor of the temple, of this building being created. But this temple is an eternal one. And he says, be careful how you build on it. Because the things that you do in this life, some of it will move on into eternity. The others will not. And so I want to get to that point of the sermon. But I'm going to start off with this light. So we want to come back to this passage. And I want us to get a, a general sense because we won't have the time to really hit 1 Corinthians 3 and all that's being said. And there's a lot there to unpack. But I want us to get there in a general sense this morning. So, here's the first thing I want to recognize that everyone who's lived life already knows. Life is hard. It's even hard for children in some ways, right? So, as, as children, we wonder, 
when will we ever get out of school? And for us as parents, we're thinking, enjoy being a child, <laughs> right? But you ask children, like, I wish I could be in your shoes, mom and dad. You guys got it easy. You get to go to the store and choose whatever candy you want, anytime you want. We have to ask permission, you know? Uh, we have tests, we have quizzes, we have all these different things in life, and, and you don't know what it's like. That's the general statements that you'll get, right? And then when you start adulting, you thought life was hard and life is even more difficult, it seems, right? We're struggling because I want a relationship. I may be lonely. Or we get married and we're wondering like, what did I get myself into in some marriages? That ha this is reality. And some, sometimes we chuckle, but for some it hurts. Right? And so these are things we go through, whether it's friendships, marriage, even having children. Right? We are told in Scripture, children are a blessing, their heritage unto the Lord. And sometimes as parents, we pull our hair out. We're wondering, why do we have children? Why do we get seven children? <laughs> oh, sorry. I wasn't going too personal. No. <laughs> the point being... There are moments when you question, what am I doing? I have no idea. Like, am I doing it right? We go through illnesses, and my heart, oh, right now, it breaks for Shane and Christy Scott. Some of you don't know, Shane has been preaching for a number of, of years, and he's just recently married, like within the last five, six or so years, and, and his wife is just weeks away from losing her life to cancer. You go through moments like this that just your life just changes and you question at times, what am I doing here? What's this about anyway, this journey? So life is hard. And we ask ourselves then, why am I put here on earth? That's the question some ask and some answer their own questions by taking their lives because it's too painful. And so these are the things I'm wanting to, to tackle in a general way. I won't be able to answer all the questions naturally because time constraints and limitations in, in our ability as human beings. But we can get some answers that I hope will edify you but also challenge every one of you here in your walk with God. So when we look at these trials and we're going through everything, every one of you at some point agreed with some of the things and we're like not in your head like, yeah, I've experienced that right? So what we are all acknowledging is that life's trials are not unique to us. But it sure feels that way at times, right? Like I'm the only one going through this trial. Like I may academically know that others go through their own trials and that maybe some others have more difficult lives than I do. And for most of us, I would say here, in fact, I would say every one of us here, as difficult as our lives can be and has been, in some situations within this room. And we've got a spectrum in this room. By and large, we have so many blessings that are easy to be forgotten. And there are so many more people in this world, outside even Middle Tennessee, outside of the United States, that have it so, so very difficult. Just two examples real quick. Since we're in 1 Kings, and we were looking at our Bible study this morning in 1 Kings, there's a time in which Elijah, Elijah who had by himself 
if you will, and I, I know God is in the picture for, uh, foremost, but as far as human beings are concerned, by himself he feels like he's going against 400 prophets of another God called Baal, right? 450 against one. From uh, God's perspective, it's just not fair for those 450 prophets. But sometimes we don't live in God's perspective. Sometimes we live with our human perspective and we feel like the odds are stacked against us, right? Feels that way. And yet Elijah comes out victorious. If you go and read that story um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, if I'm not mistaken, he has had a couple of major victories And I want you to read what happened soon after that. This tells you just how fragile life can be for us. So in 1 Kings, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings. Read chapter 19 here in in verse uh, 10 with me and see if we can kind of get perspective of what's going on with Elijah. Again, man of God, great faith, and we see it in action, and we saw God working mightily through Elijah's hand. So in chapter 19, here in verse 10, this is what it reads. Elijah says, let me back up to verse 9. Elijah goes to a cave, spends the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God of hosts, For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Elijah, if we were to put it in a modern vernacular, he's facing depression. You just don't have that word given in scripture here. But he wants to just... Have his life taken. That's how life can turn on a dime. You go from having just an amazing victory, right? You're you're talking about a man who who can talk to the king and tell the king, it's not going to rain for three years. It doesn't rain. Rain's coming, and and it rains. And then you can go and and say these words against 450 men that from their emotional standpoint seem overwhelming against you. But God is on my side. And on the very next moment, because of circumstances, as we could read of here, he now wants his life done away with. What's the point of living when I'm the only one and everyone else is turned away against my God, against you, Lord? That's how he felt. Fast forward, and it's not just when you're being faithful to God, but sometimes even in our own righteous, seemingly righteous indignation that things are going wrong, even for wacky reasons like Jonah, right? Jonah's told to go and preach repentance to a foreign nation who took his people away, led them into captivity. And now he's told to go and preach to this, these people, and he doesn't want to because he knows that God is gracious. And yet God 
through his divine providential means, gets Jonah to Nineveh. And he does preach God's word. He preaches a repentance to Nebuchadnezzar. He preaches um, to the people there, excuse me, to the king. Um, and, and here, the people here, they all repent from the king down to the least of them. And instead of rejoicing, he's upset. I want you to go to the fourth chapter. Go to Jonah and this could go on because you have many illustrations, but I want you to see just a couple of these illustrations for the purpose of knowing here's what goes on in our lives and that we can relate to each of these. In Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry because these people did repent and God was gracious toward them. So he prayed to Yahweh, prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah's form of justice was not matching up with God's. Let me reverse that. God's form of justice was not matching up to Jonah's. And he's upset with God. Therefore now, O Lord, verse 3, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why even preach when you're going to go ahead and let these wicked, evil people turn to you? Where's the sense of justice in that? That's the picture of Jonah, where, he at, where he's at in his life. And so it could be from a standpoint of great sorrow, great grief, uh, confusion, anxiety, whatever the situation. It could be anger. Life just seems so difficult to go forward. And so these trials are not unique to these two individuals. We, they're just replete through Scripture. And outside of the scripture, we can just look at our own lives. We go through our trials, that which at times seems very difficult. We may not think it's as difficult as someone else's, but it's difficult to us in the heat of the moment, right? So what do we do? How do we look at these things? See, I believe we live, generally speaking, in a pass-fail society. Generally speaking. So for you to succeed in life, you've got to do these things, right? You've got to get these grades. You've got to go this kind of a school. You've got to get this kind of an education or this kind of a degree. And, so, and, and if you don't get it, you can't, you're not qualified. And there is a general sense in which that ought to be the case. There are times in which that should be the case, but, but it reflects more than just that. It becomes something greater than it should be. And so we look at life in a pass-fail standpoint, like, like I'm failing at life. Instead of, as Scripture reveals, and Scripture reveals this concept of testing. And, of course, you know, our, our, that's where we get the word tests and quizzes from, right? From this concept of the word test, which is the word for trial. 
And we're talking about testing something, whether it's metals, precious metals. You're finding out the genuineness of it, the quality of it. And for, for a lack of a better way of explaining it, that's a test. And does it come through? Does it pass that test? Is it qualified for what it's going to be used for? And that's the picture that is given, right? And so when we look at this standpoint of testing, we see it all throughout Scripture. And the very first time this concept of a test, a trial, is given is found in Genesis 22, right? So looking at the life of Abraham, here's a man who God said, I want you to come out of your country, from your father's household, from your father's idols, and so on and so forth. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does so. But while in the land, time and again, without going through all the, the different episodes, Abraham, as faithful as he was in various ways, lacked faith in a number of ways as well. And the most notorious that we can read of as was mentioned this morning um, in our Bible study, was when he and his wife, in the name of wanting to be blessed by God, because God told him he was going to make his name great, takes his wife's maidservant to have an heir. That's not what God wanted. But he took things into his own hands, and things weren't working out. And eventually got to the point where at some point God decides to really test Abraham's trust in him. Don't do things on your own terms, Abraham. Do things my way. That's the, the test. We don't get it stated that way in Scripture, but that's really what he's doing. So when you go to Genesis 22, that's exactly how the author that writes this book gives the picture of his relationship with Abraham. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, right? Well, what's the test? Abraham, I want you to take your one son that was given to you by me, right? I promised you you were going to have a son. I gave you a son. Not on your terms, but on my terms. I blessed you with him. Now, I want you to take that one and only son that you have, give him back to me. You sacrifice him. Now, I don't know about you, but he's had a lifetime of doing things his own way and learning, I need to trust in God. And he finally gets to that point where he is able to take this test, so to speak. And he's ready to slay his son, knowing by faith that if my God promised me an heir and it was going to be by his terms and his way, then I know that if I take the life of my child, my God will raise him from the dead and give him back to me because he promised. Brethren, I'm not sure where your faith is at. I'd have a hard time personally on any one of my children. And some might say, well, Mitch, you don't have just one. That's hard. I don't care how many children you have. Abraham takes his one and only child and is ready to slay him with the faith knowing that God is still going to keep his word. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
It says, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And sure enough, God provided. In fact, that's the place, the name of that place. God will provide. Abraham lifted his eyes, looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, And so Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's Abraham's test. Can you imagine, why why would God do that to me? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I can tell you generally, his ways are so much higher than ours, and it's not a cop-out answer. It is a reality. His ways are so much higher than ours, and I, I don't question that wisdom. If, if God can create this universe, I say he's a pretty wise guy. And I mean that without anything but reverence. He's a wise, supernatural being with the kind of wisdom that I cannot comprehend. And just as parents, right, we have children that question at times, especially as they're even very young, question the wisdom of mom and dad's decision. Why they can't have ice cream at 10 o'clock at night just before going to bed with church services in the morning. <laughs> and we're like, I don't, how, how do you explain it to your children? Right? It's not going to, no matter what you say to them, it's not going to ring well. From that measly analogy is likened unto the way we sometimes question our creator's wisdom. But nonetheless, God explicitly put, Adam, put Abraham to the test, and that's what we see. Or how about when Israel, God graciously saves them, delivers them from the hand of the Egyptian um, kingdom, Pharaoh, and they make their way across the Red Sea, and they're wandering now in the wilderness. Look at what it says here in Exodus 15, and it's all throughout the book of Exodus, by the way, at various poignant points in their 40-year history in the wilderness. Exodus 15, look at what the author says. Verses 20, well, yeah, verses 25 and 26. So he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. Say, backdrop. They've gone into a desolate area. There's hardly any water. Hardly any food. And you're looking at the possibility of upwards of two to three million people. I'm telling you, that's a lot of water you're going to need. And they're crying out to the Lord. And so Moses on their behalf cries out to the Lord. And he showed them this tree. Cast the tree into this place that had some bitter water, it says. Mara, if you will. And he tests them there. He says in verse 26, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And so he heals those bitter waters, makes it sweet, if I can say it that way. And they get rest, they get deliverance, they get water. 
But he says, I'm going to test you. And go on to chapter 16. He goes on to say in verse 4, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven because they were needing food. I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. See, God could have simply said, here's food. Have at it. But he specifically said, you get so much every day, and you only get so much every day, that he's doing that to test them. He's wanting to know, where's your heart? That's what he wants. On this one day, the day before the Sabbath, you get twice as much. That way you have food for that day, and I'll provide food for you on the Sabbath. Only get twice as much on that day, no more, to test them. All throughout the book of Exodus are these tests. It's a part of life. The thing is, we don't have divine revelation today. We don't have some book and I, I tease you at times, I talk about the book of second opinions, you know, some other book of the Bible, and, and it's our life story, right? And we write in life story, divine revelation, we don't have that. And so what we do is we trust that God still works the same way today as he did then. He still tests us. And our tests are unique to our life's circumstances. Sometimes it's individually. Sometimes it's collectively as a family. Sometimes it's collectively within a community like this congregation or maybe it's Franklin. Maybe it's our state. Maybe it's our country. But he'll test us. He does so throughout history with all peoples. And when we read places like Exodus chapter 20, Verse 20, or Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, he explicitly tells us the purpose of this test. In Exodus 20, here's what he says. After giving the Ten Commandments and having basic agreement between he and the people of Israel, he says this. Moses says to the Israelites, do not fear God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you. And for the purpose that you will not sin. And the reason for not sinning is not for any other reason, but he wants fellowship. He wants a, a relationship with his creation and with his special covenant people at this time. He wants a relationship, but he's a holy God and he cannot have fellowship with sin. So what he wants is for them to keep these teachings that Moses had given to them so they could have and share in him. That's the purpose. And Moses, before he leaves the Israelites, before they cross over into the promised land, he makes it very clear this very test's purpose. Again, in chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says over here in, in the first two verses, Every commandment which I command you today, you must carefully observe that you may live and multiply. And that you'll be able to go in and possess the land of which I, the Lord, have sworn to your fathers. And you will remember or shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so, that's part of life. And when we fast forward to our life... 
It's no different than what we see going on with the church at Corinth. Right? So, everyday life, we can see. I hope that you can see in your situation. But sometimes these tests come collectively, like the church at Corinth. So right now we're doing a Bible study at Brookdale on Thursdays, and we've just gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And one of the things that we're discussing is, is the total chaos in the relationships among Christians. And the, the funny statement like this is, the Lord's church would be perfect, and I'm speaking from a sarcastic way. It's a certain vantage point, so don't take it theologically as accurate, all right? <laughs> the Lord's church would be great and perfect if it was not made up of human beings. Because we human beings that come to Jesus Christ and we come part of this body, we bring, not our luggage, <laughs> we bring our baggage. And with it comes the flesh, right? We bring into this our unique strengths, our unique weaknesses. And at times, you know, especially at the very beginning times of this relationship, it's all good. Everyone puts their best foot forward. But what happens at some point is we let our guards down and it's easy to be sarcastic. It's easy to be flippant. It's easy to be insensitive. And we start hurting each other's feelings. We start doing things that we know we ought not to be doing. And what is true of the Lord's church, we see it in families. We see it in friendships. All right, any type of relationship that we come to get to know each other. And the problem with the church at Corinth is this church that the Apostle Paul had been working with for years prior to leaving. Writes to them and says, you're still fleshly. You have not been growing in Christ. And all of that is a test. That is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want, I want us to read the entirety of this chapter. And I want you to get the feel for it because we're going to get to a place, particularly if you remember when Jesse read verse 15, for some, that's theologically um, rubbing you the wrong way, possibly. And so we want to get there. But I want you to see the test here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, all the same thing. you got division. That's the problem with the church at Corinth. And the division is because there's strife, there's jealousy, there's backbiting of all kinds. So, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk. And not solid food. For now or until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able. You are still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving just like mere men? When one says, I'm of Paul, and the other says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you have believed, as God or the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward to his own labors. Focus in on verse 8, because we're going to go back to verse 8 again, not necessarily in the scripture, but in thought. Right? 
One who plants, one who waters, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And then he transitions into another metaphor. He says, you are God's building. So remember that picture of the temple that we talked about earlier? Right here. Think temple again. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire or through the test. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, or in other translations, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There's always trials in the church. There's some people that don't want to come to church because they see there's sinners in the church. I'm like, yeah, that's right. I don't know why people don't get that. It's like you don't magically become amazingly perfect people just by becoming a Christian. You come into the body of Christ because you need to be saved like the Israelites need to be saved. But God tests us. And we may not have a specific test like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Ours is simply a test of can we build upon this structure, this temple that is made without hands? And are we building up the body of Christ or are we tearing it down? There's the test. Because we are taught to love God and love our neighbor, are we practicing that? Are we living it out? Are we passing the test? And so that's the picture that is given here. The problem is, he says there's jealousy, strife, and division. He says those labors will not endure. When the test is all said and done, that's like stubble. That's like straw. That's like hay or wood that gets burned up and it's no good. It doesn't endure. But there are some works that endure. Think about it. Let it sink in. I want you, those of you that consider yourself Bible students, go through this letter in your Rolodex. If you can fast forward through the whole letter, get to the answer. Because there's, an, there's a place in which he deals, after dealing with divisions, he deals with sexual morality, deals with marriage, so sex-related things. And then he deals with idolatry things. 
in, well, chapters four, I mean, five, six, and seven, marriage-related or sex-related things. Eight, nine, ten, he deals with idolatry things. And then chapters 11, um, 11 through 14, he deals with the church coming together things, if you will. And all these things, there's problems. And in the middle of this, he gives us the answer. He already alludes to it here in 1 Corinthians 3. And he deals with it very explicitly by the time you get to chapter 13. You see, there are those in the church at, at Corinth, not unlike what goes on today, whether we're talking about spiritual gifts or non-spiritual gifts that the Lord's church has. And here's what takes place. In the first century, if you go back to chapter 13, you know, you have those that are able to speak in tongues. He says, but you don't have love. You're nothing. You have those who are able to prophesy. Have not love. Nothing. There are those that are, that are so zealous to sacrifice their own bodies, just like Jesus sacrificed his body, but without love. You have nothing. You've gained nothing. You profit nothing. And then he goes on talking about the epitome of what love is able to do. Its work is enduring. It will continue to last forever. In fact, he goes on at the very end of that chapter and says, you know, these th three, three things, faith, hope, and love, but even the greatest of these three great things is love. It's going to endure. You go back to chapter 3, and he talks about the different works that are burned up and the different works that, uh, that are enduring, that which builds up this temple, this body, this building, and that which tears it down. And in the body of Christ, look at what tears down today. And some even justify their tearing down the body of Christ through self-righteousness. You just don't see it. That's why we have churches that split into other churches. People going away because they're just done. All these things. And instead of the body being built up, it's torn down. And the ones that are tearing it down, it's like, no, no, no. And justify their actions rather than humble themselves saying, I've contributed to this. I need to humble myself. This is what goes on even today. And so how do we look at this? Well, if you went back to these verses, again, 12, 13, 14, 15, look one more time. And I'm hoping that the rest of this will serve as warning and hope. Here's where the warning and hope comes in. Verses 12 following, 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. When, when judgment comes, it will be made known. How have we been living our lives in Christ? Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work. I want you to know he's talking metaphorically, right? I hope you guys get that, right? So he's using this picture of judgment and how each of our lives stand before him. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. 
Sometimes because of our pass-fail mentality, we, some Christians look at salvation from, have I done good enough? Without using these words, have I earned it? We know theologically there's no such thing. We know it's by God's grace. We know it's grace through faith, right? So we've got this faith, but we put so much effort on the faith that we, we talk academically about the grace, but not actually really revel in it. And so, have I done well enough? Was I faithful enough? You'll be saved because of the blood of Jesus. That should bring you hope. Hope until this becomes the issue. Look at the next verse. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are the temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you? Whether we're talking collectively or we're talking individually, they both work that way because individually we come together and make up the collective body of Christ. And we're not going to be judged as a collection. Right? So, individually as well, just like he who believes and is baptized will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, same thing here. We, our bodies, individually, are temples, a place where God and man come together as one. That's the fellowship we're talking about. And how we use this body, do I use it unto the glory of God? Do I love him? Do I love my neighbor? Or am I destroying this body? And I'm not just talking about destroying it where I'm taking drugs and destroying my body. That's how sometimes it's used in the pulpit. But I'm talking about strife and division where we destroy the body of Christ. Or we destroy people's lives by our words and our actions whom God made in their image, in his image. What are we doing? This is an explicit passage that talks about the test. And he says, if anyone, and this is the New King James, but I believe it's a New American Center that uses it very technically. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. The body of Christ is holy. It's been set apart, sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Don't destroy what God, through Jesus Christ, had been sacrificed for. Don't do that. You do it, and you will not pass. You will face condemnation. You will face condemnation no different than in Matthew chapter 7 when when Jesus would say, there are going to be those that say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And among them is going to be this group who destroyed the body. Those are the trials. This is the answer, and you cannot overemphasize love. I, I'm going to state it one more time. You cannot overemphasize love. can't do it. Now, love is not just all feel good and it's all by itself. And there's faith, naturally. But remember... You can speak in tongues, you can prophesy, you can sacrifice your own body, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. This is where it's all working out. This is what is eternal. And so we're told, 
Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work. That's what he says. Take those trials, and I'm not saying like you smile through them. I'm saying you appreciate those trials for what they are, testing of your faith. That your walk with God is producing within you a preciousness and a genuineness that is able to pass through these trials on the other side of the testing, better for it. That's what can happen when you walk with God and you walk with him in the light of his love. That's what you have. And so collectively, what we do individually, same thing collectively. But as a family here, that's what our striving together should be, building up the body of Christ. All throughout the scriptures, there's no more greater theme in the Bible of a community of believers and their work together. Just read the scriptures over and over, New Testament scriptures, it is abundantly clear. This is the work that we have within the body of Christ. James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once, um, or for, for once he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And just as Abraham did, so should we. So I hope that in hearing this message this morning, you're really thinking through this test, life, especially when those moments are hard for you. See if you can gain a higher heavenly divine perspective, if you can, and look at it from God's vantage point. And I believe you'll be the better for it. Pray to him, petition him, because we're too weak. We can't make it on our own. Know that he will provide. Because that's what God wants. Now, I want to say this. If you're here, we've got a number of visitors with us throughout the building here. I want you to know that your God loves you so much. He gave us Jesus. He gave us his son. He died for you. You specifically. When I say you specifically, every one of you that I could look at, he's talking to you. <laughs> he wants you to have fellowship with him. He wants to share in his glory with you. If you want that, he's willing to save you from your sins. Your trials are still going to continue. Whether you're outside of him, not having a relationship with him, or inside of him, having a relationship with him, you'll still have those trials. And he will provide those trials for your sake. But he will not test you beyond what you're capable of. He will make it so that you can endure it. Find an escape through it and come out better on the other side. And his promise is everlasting life. That's his gracious promise to you. And if you're willing to believe that his son, Jesus, died on the cross for your sins and washes away your sins, just as scripture says explicitly then by faith I ask that you come forward, that you'll be able to die with him in the likeness of Jesus' death and raise up out of that watery grave called baptism to newness of life. And brethren, if you need, need our prayers, we're here to pray with you and for you. That's your invitation. Let's together we stand and sing.